Hey folks, this is Scott McDonald. Thank you for tuning in to the second episode of The Artist and the Salesman. On today's episode, there will be no guest, but I will be addressing a series of questions that were presented to me from friends both in the industry and outside the industry. Hopefully this can give a better understanding to those of you who don't work in the industry, some of the ins and outs of our daily operations, and also maybe provide a chuckle or a thought-provoking moment for those of us who do work in the industry. So I'm just going to jump right into it. Uh, my first question is a three-parter presented by a good buddy of mine named Jared, who is an industry individual, a member of two unions. Uh, his first question is, what was or has been your hardest job so far in the industry? And I gave that one a lot of thought. What I came up with was probably most difficult was when I led a Beyonce video for the Lemonade album. The song was titled Hold Up. The director, Jonas Ackerman, very famous uh, music video director, lots of big ideas, lots of cool stuff. It was initially pitched to me as something very small, non-union, and uh, just very minimal. Well, after that idea was presented to Beyonce, she said she'd rather go much bigger, much grander. So after I had already booked the job, it basically turned into a giant. It went obviously very quickly to Union, and it went from me and a few crew members to me and about 25 to 30 crew members at the very end. We had about seven trucks of dressing, seven five-ton trucks, which is kind of like a, just smaller than a moving truck. Uh, but you see them all over Hollywood, these big-ass white trucks going around everywhere, uh, full, of, full of dressing. The, uh, the scale of it, as I said, just kept getting bigger and bigger. Uh, things were changing at, at, at a moment's notice. And eventually, it came out to be just a giant, glorious, explosive, insane experience. So if you've seen the video, there's monster trucks explosions, stunt motorcycles, all kinds of craziness. Now, the second thing that I could think of in terms of a, a, one of my most difficult jobs was the, se the first season of Baskets, the TV show, starring Zach Galifianakis, Louis Anderson, great show. Uh, I was brought into that show after it had already begun production after the original lead man had a family emergency and had to leave abruptly. Now the show already had its own crew and I didn't feel that it was a cool move to replace everyone just because the lead man had to leave the job. So I kept the initial crew and I didn't actually know any of them before then. But a after that uh, initial week or two of just kind of trying to dive into something that was already in full motion I guess that would be the most difficult part. That and that there was no stage work. That show was entirely locations. On a lot of TV shows, the art department gets the opportunity to kind of have a little home base on the stage. They call that the gold room. And they can kind of plan their operations out of there and it's kind of a central meeting point. Well, if a show doesn't have a stage then it's and it's all locations, then the truck is kind of the gold room. So that makes it a little more difficult and especially if you have a series of trucks 
locations all over the place, including uh, this rodeo in Northern California that I have to say was the most fly infested place I've ever been to in my life. And I've been all over the world to some really weird places. And I just, it almost looked like there was clouds in the sky at times, but it was just clouds of flies blocking out the sun. Uh, this last one I could think of in terms of the hardest jobs was back when I was a non-union lead man and I was doing a lot of still shoots. And this was for Vogue magazine. Uh, and I was just privileged enough to get to work with uh, Annie Leibowitz on a series of these Vogue covers. And on this one they had uh, Nicole Kidman, um, Kate Hudson, Maria Bello, and one other individual whose name is escaping me. And they had to walk down this large stretch of beach, and it was right off El Matador Beach. Um, I don't know if you Californians that have been out there, just to get down to the beach, it's about a quarter mile switchback trail, kind of one of those zigzag down the hill kind of trails. Well, myself and one other individual had to carry half inch sheets of four foot by eight foot plywood down to the beach and bury them just under around an inch or so of sand so that the women could walk in heels in the wet sand without the heels digging into the sand and causing it to make it difficult for them to walk. Uh, and of course they wanted really long stretches of area to just photograph the women naturally walking along on the beach. So that basically entailed myself and the other individual, I think his name was Gabe, I think it was Gabe Vanderwalker, for those of you out there who know Gabe. We carried about, oh gee, I don't know, about two or three football fields worth of four by eight sheets of half inch plywood down there and buried him in the sand. And at the end of the day, as the sun was setting, got to dig them all up and carry them back up the hill. So that was a challenge. Uh, second question from Jared, what was some of the craziest locations you've ever worked on? Well. The three I could think of off the top of my head was uh, for a Japanese cigarette commercial for a brand called Larks. Uh, myself and my buddy Landon Poff got to work on the roof of the AT&T building, one of the tallest buildings in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, it's just amazing view up there, beautiful, crazy, and the kind of place you'd never get a chance to go if it weren't for working in this industry and getting the opportunity to shoot in odd places. like. The next thing I could think of was this yacht that was the biggest yacht I've ever seen, owned by the guy who created the 3M ear protection, those little foam things you put in your ear to protect from loud noises. That guy made such a great deal of money off of that. This yacht was enormous, and apparently at one time, one time it wasn't considered large enough for him. So instead of buying a larger yacht, he cut that yacht in half and literally built the middle section out larger. I, I shit you not, and put the whole thing back together. Uh, that was for a Priscilla ProClean detergent commercial. This European detergent. Great stuff. Uh, but that was a weird situation because no one could wear their shoes on the boat because they didn't want to hurt the, the wood deck, the really nice teak wood deck. So I never worked a whole day in my socks. Does not do good things for your arches, I will tell you that. And then lastly on this one, uh, got to work at Creech Air Force Base in Nevada, which is where they do most of the drone stuff out there uh, for the United States Air Force. And this was a real odd one. This was a sexual harassment training video for the United States Air Force. 
and it was just kind of like a like a choose your own adventure type training video like anyone who's had to watch a corporate training video you know a situation is uh presented to you uh stop the tape here you have choice a choice b choice c you know discussed amongst yourselves so it was one of those um with the emphasis being the sexual harassment uh training uh it was just crazy to be out there on the air force base uh and getting to be in areas that normally we never uh as a civilian individual would have access to um and then jared's final part of his questions how did i get into the business um, well, I moved down here from Eugene, Oregon in 1999, uh, intent on becoming a film writer, but after a few months of feeling discouraged and running out of money, I took to working set construction uh, at a place called Jet Sets here in the San Fernando Valley. They just build all kinds of craziness, uh, for different film and television commercial productions. They're one of a dozen union uh, build shops, set construction shops that you can have build your stuff and, and bring it in to wherever you're shooting or you can have them come right to your stage and build it there. A great asset, very, very great asset. Uh, and then my first art department job being an art PA on an Avis car rental commercial. Uh, and other than that, it was a lot of going on Craigslist and doing free jobs or jobs for like $75, you know, flat. And they would always say the same thing. And those of you who've been around the block a few times will remember this phrase and laugh. Sometimes when they didn't have anything to offer you financially, it would say, this job will have no pay. However, you will receive copy, meals, credits, and great connections. So copy meaning, uh, say, a videotape or DVD copy of whatever the project is. By the way, this nothing really ever happens anymore, if it ever did. I've never once received a copy of anything I've worked on at all. Um, meals, of course, that's, that's kind of part of it. Credits, yeah, they're going to they're gonna credit you at the end. And the Great Connections is really ultimately the only thing that kept me going back to doing free work time after time was meeting people. And just putting my name out there, which finally led to more and more work. Okay, thanks for those questions, Jared. Those were very thought-provoking. Uh, my friend Mark, also a set dresser, asks, what's uh, one of the more silly or embarrassing mistakes you've ever made uh, in, in the business? And the top two I could think of were, uh, there was a time long ago where I was doing some art direction and production design. And I art directed a small film called Conversations with Other Women that had Aaron Eckhart and Helen Bonham Carter in it. And I also want to say a young Olivia Wilde. Uh, I was very new to things, probably not very qualified for that job, somehow managed to get it. And my big screw up there was that I misplaced $7,000 in lumber receipts for the sets that we built. Uh, in the, in the business, when you, when you do that, it's not so much that you're going to be accountable for it, but it's basically going to make sure you're not going to get hired again. But if it's a large enough money, I'd imagine they probably could make you accountable for at least a portion of it. And at the time, I was under the impression I was on the hook for all of it. Thankfully, I worked it out with the lumber company, and they were able to give me some new backdated receipts, clear up the whole situation. 
Uh, the other situation that I thought of was more embarrassing uh, was when I was leading a movie called Flight of the Living Dead, a little zombies on an airplane movie that was put out, you know, right during the hype of the Snakes on a Plane. So it came out after Snakes on a Plane and after Snakes on a Train, which neither I worked on, I wish I had. But this was actually kind of inventive, a zombie outbreak on an airplane, where are you going to go? Uh, but we shot that at Air Hollywood in Pacoima, California, which is a great stage and studio that have a bunch of airplane and other aerial uh, vehicle fuselages inside that you can film in. Very convincing, full passenger planes, cockpits, and so on and so forth. So we shot the whole movie there on this airplane, but you'd always have to take a pretty significant step up from the stage floor up into the plane, uh, because as you call, you know, remember how a plane door is. And at one time, and in such an eager effort to run in when I was when our department was called, I missed that step, tripping about as hard as one can while holding a bunch of set dressing man, flopping face forward onto the ground in front of the whole shooting crew, smacking my face against the ground, giving myself a bloody nose, and everyone panicking, thinking I had really hurt myself significantly, where it was really just my pride that was hurt in that one. So I, that was one of the earliest lessons I learned was never, never run on set. There's nothing that important that you can't walk safely. Good question, Mark. Nico asks, and Nico's another, uh, another set dresser like myself. He says, how, how do you think the ego affects art? That's a pretty broad question. I like that. I like the, the diversity of that one. And I think it really depends on, on the medium. Uh, you, I, see, I see it only really heavily in music videos or still shoots, uh, but, but not so much in, in, say, commercial work or, or film work. But then every once in a while with some long-term uh, directors and showrunners of television shows or studio heads, then every once in a while it seems like these folks that have been around long enough and have had enough hit shows, uh, it's more to the whim of how they feel personally more than the project's validity or level of quality. But again, I, I got to be vague on that one, not only because it's just such a broad question but if I bring up anything specifically I think that could that could hurt feelings uh, Nico's second question uh, and this is also one I got to keep kind of vague uh, is the film industry a money laundering machine well I think uh, probably in theory some very large movies with with foreign investments or uh, domestic investors of shady character I'm sure it happens. I've heard of it happening. Um, personally, I've only experienced two films, both of which were in the horror genre and both non-union early on in my career where I got a strong sense that whoever was the financiers uh, were, were just of, of questionable business practices. I'll leave it at that. But they paid us uh, eventually and... and I don't think in either case, actually, I think one of the two of those films came out and the other one, it might have entirely just been to launder money with no ever real plan of releasing the film. So Chris Jett is actually a buddy of mine up in Portland 
and uh, he's not in the industry uh, of film and television. He asks, how often are set builds reused? And that's a really good question. In television, they're reused real frequently. Uh, if a show, say for example, like I worked on How I Met Your Mother, they had a lot of what you call standing sets, meaning those are the primary, like Ted's apartment or any of the main spots, like the bar that they hung out in that you'd see on almost every episode. Those were just always there, always dressed and ready to go. Then there were lesser important sets, maybe a character whose apartment or workplace you don't see too often. Those would get assembled and dressed. They would shoot it out and then we would de-dress it and the construction crew would disassemble it and store all those walls together, wrapping the whole thing up usually in heavy plastic and labeling it very specifically to the episode number, the season number, and the character or whatever the relation of the item uh, was to the storyline. Uh, you don't see set builds getting reused as much in film or commercial or music video, but in some cases, like on certain, certain studios will keep a significant set piece if they know they can get more continued uh, shooting value out of it. Uh, and then, yeah, but like music videos and commercials, there's really just, it's too expensive to store it and they don't really have a reason to. And then eventually, once the stuff has just been so used up that it, you can't really even put it on film anymore, there's some very creative folks out there uh, that have storage facilities for folks that want to store uh, anything that from, their, from their film production or their, maybe their own personal tools or whatnot. For a period of time kind of like a you know a you store it type place but basically they're using all these set walls inside of a giant empty warehouse to assemble a bunch of little rooms that you can lock up of varying sizes you can rent them and lock them lock them up put your stuff in there and they're all secured so it's just kind of like the final stage of the recycling of a of a piece of a set build before it goes off into the great beyond uh rob asinger asks how long after retirement does a 44 399 member uh, live? <laughs> kind of a funny, crazy question. But I've always been under the impression that much like a shark, you know, probably not long because, you know, sharks die if they stop swimming. So I'd imagine the same would happen to a, a set dresser and or driver, especially both. Um, my friend Sydney who I met when she was uh, starting out in the industry. I don't know, if, I think she's an artist now. I'm not sure what elements of the industry she still is in. Um, she says, why is it valuable uh, to PA at least once? And a PA is a production assistant. That's basically, I don't want to use the, the term bottom rung of a production, but it's one of the lower positions that's filled and you're kind of, an assistant to all you know it could be if you're working in the office it could be answering calls uh, unfortunately getting uh, lunch or coffee things like that uh, but there's a variety of tasks involved there I'm not as well versed on office PA work I've never done much of that but on setting or production PA work uh, it's a lot of trying to keep things clean uh, trying to make sure people aren't walking through shots, uh, making sure people have fresh walkie batteries, walkie-talkie batteries, and stuff like that. Basically just being an every person. How can I help you? What can I do for you? 
I think it's important uh, for an individual to do that at least once in their career because I, I think it offers a couple, a couple important things. It offers insight. I think it offers humility. I think it offers you a chance to really understand different levels of communication and timing. Also lingo, just basically the, the film terminology that, that might not be so standardly known to anyone. So you'll, you'll just get that under your belt. You already know that whatever position you move on to. Uh, the politics of, of set and production life. You're going to get a taste of that as a PA. And then you're going to make connections. So overall, it's just going to make you into a more well-rounded individual with a better head on your shoulders for moving forward into whatever position uh, you end up wanting to pursue. Uh, my friend Nicole asks, is film school helpful? And I, I didn't attend film school. I attended uh, the University of Oregon and I got a literature degree. But I think that anything that stimulates you creatively is helpful in our line of work. Uh, because this is the business of creativity. This is the, they call it movie magic. You know, it's, it's, it's making something out of nothing. It's entertaining people, it's eliciting emotion. And, and to do that, I think that anything that stimulates your creativity is, is key to that. So if, if film school is part of that, then, then hell yeah. I do, I do work with many people that did do film school and they are terrific, terrific people to work with, very knowledgeable. Yeah. But it's not 100% necessary to do what we do. But if it, if you like it, then then keep on trucking. Uh, my friend Blake, who uh, I've known since high school, he's not an industry fella, but he asks: Is uh, is marijuana smoking real in film and television when you when you see it on uh, portrayed on TV or when you're at the theater? Uh, sometimes it uh, is real, but but typically no. Uh, one famous example I can think of specifically, I uh, was not there, but I've heard this from a number of, of sources, uh, that's in the film Jackie Brown, when you see Robert De Niro's character smoking marijuana with uh, Bridget Fonda's character, he, at least maybe in one or two takes, was in fact smoking real marijuana. If anyone has verification of that, please let me know. Uh, and other instances where you, where you would be certain that they're smoking real marijuana, uh, generally they are not. Now, I guess it also depends on the, on the actor or the, the artist. Uh, you know, there are certain folks that kind of have a, just a free pass. You know, I don't think it's any secret. Uh, anyone who's worked with Snoop Dogg, he is always smoking real weed. I don't think that, uh, I don't think he would ever fuck around with something fake that's just would be a waste of his time uh let's see my buddy loomer everyone knows loomer he's an industry fella he says are, are you working in the crew position that you expected uh, to be when you got into the business and i'd say uh not necessarily but i'm much happier for for whatever reason when i started out i had it in my head that i was going to uh production design uh, or at least art direct uh, but Ultimately, I just found more joy in doing uh, set dressing and lead person work as well as just being a prop person, being assistant prop uh, master. I just found a lot of rewarding moments in that. So ultimately, although I'm not in the position I necessarily thought I'd be in when I started, I think I'm considerably happier. Uh, Gerald 
and Ron, two different two different buddies of mine, both industry, have asked uh, what are the harvest hardest harvest the hardest COVID-based adjustments that I've had to make uh, in the industry are just ones that I've noticed. And I'd say pretty much everyone can agree with it being the the COVID testing schedules can can be tricky. Uh, the delays in shooting or just overall delays in production, like I was supposed to be on a job, uh, started a week ago, but it got pushed a year because of COVID. So sometimes the delays can be just a couple hours. Sometimes they can be much longer. And then the actual tests themselves, uh, the spitting ones weren't so bad. You have to spit into a little receptacle. The nose swabs that you could do yourself weren't terrible. But I think most people would agree with me that the nose or throat swabs that were administered by uh, the COVID test people could be at times very uncomfortable and just obviously a necessary difficulty that we have to go through if we want to be out there working, if we're going to be safe. But just, you know, uncomfortable. But I think overall the biggest thing I'd notice was just how much it delays any kind of scheduling and affects any attempted level of planning because it just seems like anything I've been on since this began, uh, there's been curveballs, daily curveballs that have to be addressed as a result of our testing or possible exposure somewhere in the crew. So everything has to be locked down until they figure that kind of thing out. Uh, false positives, things like that. Just, just big delays, but again, necessary delays. Totally get it. Um, Loomer also asks, this is another question from Loomer, scariest situation I've witnessed on set. And I could only think of a couple. Uh, right, right when I started out, I was on a Propel Fitness Water commercial. It was like an, an offshoot of Gatorade, just kind of like a watered-down Gatorade. And uh, there was a couple of gentlemen from the art department that were carrying a big pane of... Uh, just glass, just um, non-tempered front, like of a front of a grocery store glass, and it popped. It just broke without anything. They they didn't hadn't stumbled or knocked at anything. It just broke, and it happened so quickly, and the piece was so sharp, it sliced right through a guy's pants and cut his le leg so significantly that uh, he started bleeding to the level that he very quickly was passing out. And I'd never seen anything like that. Luckily, he's totally okay. Just had to get some stitches and everything. I just remember in the moment it happened so quickly that all he saw was his pants were ripped and he said damn it I just got these pants and then it started bleeding and he fell to the ground uh, on a coke commercial coca-cola commercial I did downtown a long time ago kind of in a, a rougher part of town we there was kind of an alley scene and although the alley looked perfect for what they were trying to accomplish for the shot it was between two uh, tenant buildings that that housed uh, drug rehab folks, uh, transition folk, transition folks like transitioning from being homeless into fresh housing, and um, just a lot of people that didn't want didn't want us there. So they were throwing bottles out the windows at us. They were going into they're going to the bathroom in plastic bags and throwing that out the window at us, or just directly going out the bathroom out the window at us. And you'd be under these pop-up tents, and it sounded like it was raining at first, but it wasn't. It was, it was human business. So they pretty much shut that shot, that commercial down within ten minutes of this all starting to happen. And everyone went home, and they ended up shooting it somewhere else, I think, on stage. But that was kind of a creepy moment. 
And then the uh, last one I can think of in terms of scary, uh, when I was doing that thing, the sexual harassment video uh, at the Air Force Base, we had a sequence where we were uh, simulating a like Afghanistan or Iraq uh, kind of base area, not a like a not a permanent base, but a base out in the in the war zone. So just all the tents and whatnot, and we had a helicopter landing sequence in the background but that what for whatever reason we didn't whoever was the logistical person didn't get the distancing correct so when the helicopter landed the the rotor wash from the from the helicopter was so significant it was blowing over the tents w with all the set dressing in it and i was in a i was hiding in a tent because you know the shot was about to start it was oh get out of the shot get out of the shot so i kind of ran into a, a tent and closed the flaps and it was a tent set up to look like a surgery tent with trays of surgical tools and all kinds of metal objects and glass objects. And as soon as that helicopter blades uh, started going crazy on the landing and everything started flying around, it was as if things were haunted in the room and scalpels were flying past me and stuff. I was, I was, I was pretty scared, pretty scared. Um, let's see. Seth, my buddy Seth, who's an artist and he's also an industry guy, asks, how does it feel when uh, your artistic representation doesn't get the result you expected. Well, I would say simply to that that I guess when I was younger, it used to really bother me. It used to really suck. But as I gotten older and been in the business longer, I, I like seeing how what different interpretations people have of anything that I do that could remotely be considered a you know an artistic representation. You know, if I'm just putting a couch in a room or putting a picture on the wall, that's not so much. But if I'm helping someone design a, a hero prop and it's supposed to make people laugh, but instead it scares them, uh, that's I guess funny in its own way. Um, Seth, Seth also asks, is it more important for people to like your work or just uh, to be involved in the attempt of evoking emotion? And I'd say much like his other question. Uh, uh, when I started out, I initially would have thought it was more about people liking what you were doing. Uh, but now, the more that I've been doing it, I think it's just about being true to yourself and true to your art, whatever that is. And then that's where the satisfaction comes from. If other people like it, then badass. If not, then so be it. Uh, Lars, set dresser, buddy of mine, asks, what's the average wage difference between union and non-union? work well i would say just without getting into too many numbers and specifics it's uh, in the neighborhood of several hundred dollars a day uh if you're just if you're set dressing uh yeah, it goes from yeah you're making 175 or 200 dollars maybe as a non-union person to before you know it you're in the 400 500 range uh and depending on your position it can go up from there so i'd say it, it would i wouldn't go as far as say it doubles but it, it definitely increases by several hundred dollars uh, Nathaniel, who is a non-union set dresser, props person, but is uh, just about in the union, looking to get this last couple of days, asked just some important, any important details for food scene etiquette and when prop multiples are needed and why. Uh, food scene etiquette, generally, if the people are going to be eating it, it's best to have a food stylist uh, so they can make sure... A food stylist and actual what they call a home ec department which uh, they not only make the most picture-perfect food but they can work directly with the actors in terms of finding out any kind of allergies likes dislikes 
things like that. And basically they'll give everyone the product that they want. It'll look great on film. The actor, if they have to eat it, won't have a problem doing so. Uh, and anytime someone, if I'm say doing a prop commercial where it's uh, I say like a Carl's Jr. burger commercial, I, I did one of those a while back, where an individual had to take a big bite of this cheeseburger in every take. And uh, at first he was like, oh, I love cheeseburgers, this is great. But I said, hey, after a while, it's, your stomach's not gonna be happy with you eating so many cheeseburgers, so it's totally okay and normal for you to spit out your bite into this bucket. So as a prop person, an on-set prop person on a commercial, a food commercial, or a film or TV show that has anyone eating something, it is normal to have a little bucket lined with paper towel. Uh, the fancier the bucket, the better. And so it doesn't feel weird, or you can hand them a paper towel or tissue for them to spit their food into if they feel uncomfortable about leaning and spitting into a bucket. And then it's always customary to throw a paper towel or towel or tissue or something over that spit out piece of food so they don't have to look at it the next time they're spitting into the bucket. I know that sounds really gross and weird, but that is totally normal in this industry. Uh, and when is it uh, important to have multiples of props? I'd say anytime the item is, is very hero, meaning very key to the production uh, or to the story, uh, and or if it's something that's very fragile uh, or something that's very unique, something that you can't easily replace at the last minute, uh, then I think it's important to have doubles of that. Hero jewelry items or uh, some weapons, things of that nature, always important to have multiples. Certain stuff, you don't have to. In terms of how many multiples you need, I think it, that just really is a case-by-case -case situation. Uh, difficult to say. Probably it's good to have at least four or five of, it, of something that's superhero if the price isn't too high, if, you can, if budget can make that happen. But I think at the bare minimum, probably at least two of something hero would be, would be key. Um, I think my last question I got to address here from my good friend Vanessa. Uh, she's both not in the industry and in the industry because she does do some some uh, work in the industry these days uh, in the costume department. Uh, she asks, "What are some creative ways you can deal with the exhaust the exhaustion of long days, as well as what kind of things can you do to pass the time on set?" Uh, well, in terms of passing the time on set, sometimes the job does that for you. You're so busy before you know it, it's lunchtime before you know it. People are talking about it being the last shot of the day. Those kind of days are awesome, but they, every day isn't like that. Uh, there are certain days where the, the phrase hurry up and wait is the phrase of the day, and you do have significant moments of downtime. Uh, a lot of people use that time really constructively to do some little forms of exercise that they can do to just keep their body uh, limber and loose and, and, and make themselves feel fit. Uh, I've seen folks bring a musical instrument if it's not too disruptive, maybe play it out by the trucks or in the parking lot, or read a book, crossword puzzles. A lot of people obviously playing games and stuff on their phones is, is always a pretty common one. I've seen people play hacky sack, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Um, Creative ways to deal with the exhaustion. Uh, nothing too creative other than just loads and loads of, of caffeine if you can take it or or if you prefer non-caffeinated uh, stimulus. Whatever, whatever can uh, get you to the end of the day while you're still being productive. 
I guess it's really important to, it's not that creative, but to go to bed a lot earlier than you want to, uh, and get up with, get up in the morning with more than enough time than you need to. So you won't be too groggy by the time you get there and need to perform your job. Give yourself enough time to actually throw a cup of coffee or like I said, tea or whatever down your throat and get yourself out the door. Um, but that's not very, that's not a very creative way. I can't really think of a creative way to deal with exhaustion. I guess I've seen people do like uh, jumping jacks and stuff like that, but I guess that falls into the category of just doing some exercise to get your blood pumping, you know, maybe do some, some knee lifts, some crunches, seeing people knock out sets of push-ups and stuff. Uh, you know, whatever floats your boat. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into episode two of the artist's and the salesman this has been your host scott mcdonald appreciate everyone submitting all of these questions and uh gonna have another guest in this coming week it'll be a surprise as to who it is i'm talking to a couple different people it's based on uh, availability as you can imagine but it's gonna be fun i guarantee it thanks everyone for all the listens and for sharing uh, the name of the podcast to uh, your friends and check out the instagram uh the artist and the salesman uh, for pictures of stuff that relates to the uh, topics that were talked about today. Anything I can think of from some of these questions that I have photographic evidence of, I'll throw that up there. So, all right, folks, everyone have a fantastic rest of your week and try to do something significant each and every day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>